0: Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info.
1: This is On Second Thoughts. I'm Virginia Prescott. I'm Helen Ellis, a New Yorker who clings to her Southern accent like
0: mayonnaise to white bread. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret southern ladies have a code when we don't have something nice to say we say something not so nice in a nice way lucky for you i'm here to
1: crack that code and Helen so Ellis let's is begin. here in Atlanta to talk about her book Southern Lady Code at the Margaret Mitchell house tonight at seven. And she was nice enough to call here first. Welcome. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm so happy that you are a Game of Thrones watcher. so
0: that I <laughs> we, could vent. We morning. have been
1: debriefing a little bit on Game of Thrones. Yes,
0: this is now officially the Game of Thrones podcast.
1: Recap. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome. Our listenership just grew by like <laughs> 900 million percent. Well, I'm so glad you're here. So Southern Lady Code code you say you know if you don't have anything nice to say
0: say something not so nice in a nice way so for example you would say she's a character which means drunk or she's an archivist which means hoarder
1: (laughs) or she's creative she's creative which i am a creative woman which means (laughs) slob So you grew up in Alabama, but lived in New York City now for, what, 25 years? 25 years. So when you were 10, you moved. Aren't you wonderful? You are
0: a good Southern lady. I think you've been here a year, and now you are officially one of us. Thank you. (laughs) So why did you move to New York City? I moved to New York City on my 22nd birthday, which was a long time ago. And I moved there because I thought that's what you did when you wanted to be a writer. You do not have to do that. And I had summer camp money from being a summer camp counselor, got on a plane, met another young woman through a chain of Alabama mamas because there were no cell phones back in 1992. And I met a woman at the Central, Grand Central Station clock because our mother says be there at 12 o'clock. We were, we lived together, and I've been there
1: ever since. Oh, that's like a movie set right there. It
0: really was, but we were wearing high-waisted acid watch jeans. Not so cute. (laughs) Well, we do think of New Yorkers as being very direct, but are Southern ladies indirect? Direct is Southern lady code for rude. (laughs) (laughs) But no, we are not indirect. I think that some people think Southern women are passive aggressive. We are not passive aggressive. We are telling you exactly what we think, but in a soft way. All you have to do is listen. So for example, sometimes women aren't comfortable saying something straight out. So for example, if I said to you, you don't want to go into his office because he's handsy, what would you think that I meant?
1: Uh, That probably there's a potential there's a potential sexual encounter. That is correct.
0: And that can be very uncomfortable for people to say. So we say he's handsy or he has trouble taking no for an answer. (laughs) And these are very nice ways to say something very predatory and scary. But all you have to do is listen. We're being direct.
1: So we have spoken to people who, for example, a woman who moved up north when she was 12 and Mm -hmm. she felt like a freak for her southern accent and tried to lose her accent. Did you ever think, you know, I need to lose this code or this
0: southern mess? When I first moved to New York, I thought, oh. I should lose the accent because so often I would go places and people would think that I was stupid, (laughs) which is not the case. Um, And then I married a New Yorker who loves my Southern accent. And I will tell you, a Southern accent is the most inexpensive and best accessory. So I cling to that
1: accent. (laughs) So, uh. But there's a kind of defiance in that, too, I've yes. noticed. You yes, know, Like, the- for example, your your menu at your annual Christmas party.
0: Yes. When I first moved to New York, I thought, I'm going to try to be like all the fancy Upper East Side ladies, and I'm going to put um, olives and mozzarella cheese on skewers, and I'm going to make canapes, and I'm going to run my oven at 450 degrees all night long. And I never left the kitchen, and my hair never left a bun. And I thought, that is no fun. People like to eat fun things. So now if you come to my house for a party, there's going to be a big (laughs) seven pound spiral cut maple glazed ham ordered because it's always like the last one you ordered with a big tray of biscuits a cheese log and uh, onion dip with Ruffles.
1: So so no gluten-free options. Absolutely. Not. The gluten-free can chew on the mistletoe or curtains. <laughs> well, you grew up with some exemplary Southern ladies. Yes. I think of your grandma. You you painted this image of her in her white gloves holding onto her Kelly bag. Yes. And your mother who went to law school in her 40s. Yes. The idea of lady, that's often set up as demure and yes. an opposite of, you know, a contemporary self-guided woman.
0: Was there anything Demure about these women? They were very demure. I'm a very demure woman, but like my mother who went to law school at 40, and like my grandmother who took me to get birth control at uh, at 80 years old and sat very prim and proper with her Kelly bag and gloves. I am a poker player, so it's a man's world, and I sit very demurely at a poker table. I don't speak unless spoken to. When asked what I do, I say housewife, and then as the game continues, just like. With somebody from Game of Thrones, I quietly reach across the table and slit your throat.
1: <laughs> The, so, let that be a warning to yes. if, if Helen Ellis asks you to play poker, all right, just wanted to let you know about that. But you can be quiet and powerful.
0: You can be polite and taken seriously. You can have an accent and um, be funny and smart and kind. Mm-hmm.
1: And these are women who grew up knowing that there are ghosts?
0: Yes, yes. Knowing that most of the men around them are probably carrying a gun? Yes, absolutely. It's the South. Everybody has a gun. It used to be in the glove compartment, but now I think we can carry them right out. Out in the open. I was just in um, Oxford, Mississippi at a coffee shop and a man in a gingham shirt and khaki pants with a huge gun strapped to his ba- belt bought me a hot chocolate. And I took that hot chocolate and said, thank you very much. Uh, so yeah, we come from a place where we are ladylike, curl our hair, wear lipstick, but are very comfortable with the macabre which is probably why you and I are so comfortable with Game of Thrones.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Helen Ellis is my guest. She is reading tonight at the Margaret Mitchell House from her book, Southern Lady Code. She's also hosts a podcast called Southern Lady Code, and it is just hilarious. I really do recommend it. Well, you also realize that your grandfather was what southern effeminate that's what we would say (laughs) southern
0: effeminate which means which means well you know in the south it really is is he southern effeminate or is he gay and it was a question that we always ask of my grandfather despite the fact that he lived with another man my entire life um and it took me 25 years to write the essay um about my grandfather which was written with the most love because you know for me growing up in alabama Nobody was out of the closet in the 80s. And when I moved to New York, you know, some girls moved to New York to be a big star or to be a writer. But really, I moved to New York so that at some point I might be the only woman in a room of gay men. And that happened at 42. (laughs) And it's happening in two weeks. It's a, you know, it's a wonderful place to be where people are so much themselves, and especially men. It's a wonderful place to be in a room of men where you do not feel threatened, um, and you feel appreciated. And, you know, my grandfather was that type of man, and I'm, I'm really proud of
1: that. So that that is a really interesting thing. You mm-hmm. know, of, of course, there were gay men in Alabama when you were growing up, but there was the code, I guess, for it. Yes. And they also, um, I don't know, did he you're not out there you can't be out there no
0: I I know so many women and uh, my mother when she was in her 70s knew at least three women whose husbands left them in their 70s to come out of the closet because they had been married all their lives and now we're in a climate where you can be more yourself and even if that's 70 years old you know the last years of your life you're coming out but I'm not so happy for the women they left behind Mm -hmm. um and, uh, you know, I, I, st- I still see it. I wonder how it is down here. <laughs> do you spend much time down here? I do. My parents are in Birmingham, and my sister and her children live in California, so we often will meet up for sort of a Graham camp in the summertime, and it's a very easy trip. But now that I'm on tour, I am just rolling in the deep of the South and loving it. I'm getting mammed every which way, and I love it, because <laughs> nobody mames me in New York. Because ma'am is southerly, New York code for something not so pleasant. Well, okay, so that's what I
1: thought too. I mean, I I could have used you when yes. I moved down here, Helen. I must say, yes, but ma'am is respect
0: here. I, I I love it. I deserve to be ma'am. Too.
1: Well, when you were when you were when you before you were a ma'am, yes. When you were a young lady, um, You yes. had a, a, a epic birthday party that you yes. write about in 1983. What happened at this? Well,
0: party? I don't want to reveal exactly what happened, but I will tell you, if a it gun ha- came out. I will. <laughs> That is I'm, gonna, I'm sorry. I'm yes, spoiled. It. Yes. I'm going to start spoiling Game of Thrones right this minute. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, I had a 13th birthday party thrown by me thrown for me by my parents at which my father faked his own death. And by hiring an actor to come in and hold you went up the much part, further he in the went, spoiler
1: than I than yeah, well, I was going you to. You the, the way. door and
0: I just slid right through like a water waterslide. Um, but long story short, if he had done what he did in 1983 today, it would have been videotaped by everybody's phone. He would have been arrested, sued, and probably be in jail. And last week, I was in Athens, Georgia, and at Avid Bookstore, and I read that story. My parents were there, and three girls three grown-ass ladies who were at that party were at the reading um and we all attested that it really happened but we all turned out okay as my father said you know back in the 80s there was no internet so you had to make your own fun <laughs> make your own fun as the lady Co for fake your death and traumatize
1: your daughter <laughs> so but it does bring up this idea of How things were, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there's a story the the first story you open with talking about like how you used to be creative, a slob, and then you've sort of neatened up as you and your husband are living together in New York. Um, And he calls you at one point, uh, a dominatrix, Donna Reed. (laughs) Yes, but yes. but that's a reference that, you know, I find myself often as a ma'am working with my young producers, not, they don't know what I'm talking about. And do, do, pe- do people know what a Southern Lady Code is anymore? I guess that's the question. Well, I
0: am here to teach you <laughs> what a Southern Lady Code is. And not only is it a way of sort of sugarcoating the truth, um, it's also a mantra that I use to write each essay and I use to live my life, which is be funny. Be honest, be kind. As I was raised, and you may have been raised this way or hear it now, every time I left the house, my mother would say, don't be ugly, which means don't, you know, it's nothing to do with the way you look. It's not like, you know, Joelle, bleach your mustache. (laughs) It means don't be rude. um, Don't be unkind. And it's that I still keep that don't be ugly.
1: Hmm. We just got a nice note on Facebook. Reggie Carter folks said, Bless your heart. Tone of voice and inflection make all the difference in the meaning. Bless your heart can mean anything from,
0: thank you for cleaning these squirrels out of my gutter, to um, it can also mean sort of like, oh, you poor thing. Like, oh, you decided to bleach your own hair with one of those caps. Bless your heart. (laughs) And I like it because it's sort of like a southern ladies yo mama <laughs> bless your heart you are so southern you were at deviled eggs as pasties <laughs> And it also can mean, you know, forget you. It's the last thing you hear before
1: someone points a gun at you and fires. (laughs) Bless your heart. Well, Helen Ellis, do you have to be born this way or can somebody learn the art of Southern Lady Code?
0: Yes, you can absolutely learn. And I will give you lessons on the podcast and I will give you lessons in the book. All it is is saying something not so nice in a nice way. It's not lying. It's not being passive aggressive. It's just... Being a little bit softer. And you can be a little bit soft and strong.
1: I think there are a lot of lessons here for being a man married to a Southern lady.
0: Oh, yes. My husband speaks fluent Southern lady code. The other day I was sitting around the house and he says, oh, that's a good shirt for painting. And I don't paint. (laughs) Don't wear that outside the house.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Helen Ellis, what a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Helen Ellis, she's in Atlanta to talk about her book, Southern Lady Code. It's at the Margaret Mitchell House tonight at 7 o'clock. You can also listen to her Southern Lady Code podcast. Now stay with us for some insight on the man who brought music education to Cobb County, one instrument at a time. I'm Virginia Prescott. This is On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Cobb County was a bustling place for commerce in the 1940s, but not for music. It had a single four-lane highway and just six schools, none with music classes. Kenneth Stanton Sr. introduced music education by creating and directing band programs throughout Cobb County schools. In 1949, he opened his first Ken Stanton music store in Marietta. Kenny Stanton Jr. now runs five of those stores in Metro Atlanta. The local institution turned 70 this year. GBB's Ellen Eldridge and Megan Butler met up with Kenny Jr. in Mariana, Marietta to mark the
2: occasion. Kenny Stanton, I'm 60 years old and I am the president of Kent Stanton Music. Cobb County has got one of the strongest band programs in the country. And it's, my father has a a lot to do with that. He had been here a while, then he started the Marriott High School band, Sprayberry, um, several bands in this area, and was the first band director in this area. And then after he got them started and found replacements for himself, he started the music store in 1949. Later, I started working afternoons, up until I was about 15, um, cleaning instruments, sweeping the warehouse. I came back in 85. I was tired of working construction. I didn't want to do it anymore, and it was an opportunity here. We didn't have any drum kits or any guitars. I was buying drum sets out of the paper. Music is everything for me, so I wanted to make my own mark with the company.
1: Kenny Stanton, Jr., there. Ellen Eldridge and Megan Butler spoke with him ahead of the company's 70th anniversary. Kenny's son, Zach, represents the third generation of the company. This month, GPB reporters have been out hiking, climbing, boating to bring you stories from our Wild Georgia series. Stories about how we interact with the natural beauty of our state. The series wraps today. Grant Blankenship reported on the coyote population, and he's with us from our Macon Bureau. Hello, Grant. Good morning. How are you? Very well. And we're also exploring how popular Stone Mountain, that tourist destination that thousands and thousands of people visit every year, compares with sim- similar structures with Sophia Salaby. She's here in the studio. Hello. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Grant, I'm going to start with you, though. You reported on a new coyote study, and you started your story explaining how it was done.
3: Right. Yes. Yeah, so... Uh they, they had to catch a bunch of coyotes is <laughs> how this worked. Uh, this, this was the largest study of its kind across the southeast. Um, took place in South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama, sections of all three of those states. And they literally, uh, researchers from the Warnell School of Forestry at UGA, caught hundreds of coyotes, tracked them with GPS collars uh, for two years just to, you know, sort of Facebook stalk them essentially and see what it was they were doing out in the wild. So
1: the results of that study, what do they show? That coyotes are now saturating the South, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's there's hardly a place in the South where there aren't coyotes. That's one thing they already knew. Um, but the questions they had that they didn't know the answers to is like exactly what it is they're doing. What are they eating, for instance? And now after two years of looking at the coyotes, and they're still parsing this information that they got, you know, the data they got from the study they are answering some of those questions.
4: Well, let
1: me back up a little bit. And, you know, obviously people in urban settings may not see coyotes, but people in rural and even suburban places often hear them at night and some even see them now and then. When did coyotes actually get to the South and where do they live?
3: Yeah. So that process started maybe about a hundred years ago. Um, They, the Mississippi River was a big fat, barrier right and but sometime about 100 years ago that was breached and then once that happened it was all bets are off coyotes are moving in the places they live if you can imagine like sort of an aerial view of the deep south it's not a lot of sort of contiguous wilderness it'll be a patch of forest here some farmland here perhaps a neighborhood and that sort of patchy quilt work of environment Coyotes are able to exploit like no other animal. They hmm. can make their themselves at home in all of these different places, sometimes in territories that take in every different kind of that. As
1: you said about us 100 years ago, it's not like there's a fence along the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, coyotes could have trotted down south at any time. Why weren't they here before then?
3: Well, you know... Back in in the days when when Europeans first hit North American shores, there were wolves and mountain lions. I mean, there were very large predators all across the South. Um, European colonists very quickly decided to extirpate those animals from from this environment so that they could have first access to the prey animals like deer and the elk, which have also been extirpated from the South. So... The coyotes just didn't have a place to be before those large predators got gone. And since those animals have been gone for a very long time, this has sort of been like an open space for some kind of predator to move back in and make itself at home.
1: So colonists moved south. They killed wolves with no wolves. Coyotes moved in. How are coyotes now shaking up the food chain?
3: Well, so out west, where coyotes have been for millennia, they're generalists. They eat small animals, uh, insects, fruit. Here, what we're seeing, and this is the big shocker from this study, they're starting to shift to more consistent preying on adult white-tailed deer. Hmm. Uh, which, so everybody kind of knew that they were maybe opportunistically eating fawns this time of year when, when fawns are born. It was sort of eating the baby deer when they were left alone. But the fact that in sort of deep uh, hardwood bottoms that they're hunting adult deer is, is sort of the, the eye-opener. And that's the thing that they found in this study.
1: And so do deer move you, you described that patchwork of dense forests separated by meadow, that kind of thing. Are deer living in that same kind of environment? Are they basically sharing those woods?
3: Well, right, yeah. So deer move across all those different environments too, right? So big big openings with grassy stuff to eat. They like those during some times of the day and but the places where coyotes are most successful in hunting deer, from what the scientists can tell, are really dense hardwood forests. Places where, like imagine you've got a Ferrari in the Kroger parking lot and you're trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. You can't just lay on the gas without like Mm -hmm. running over a shopping cart, right? So that's the case of the deer in these woods. They can't go as fast as they can and they're sort of at a strategic disadvantage to coyotes in that environment.
1: So one of the things I heard in your report is this distinction between the transient animal and the resident animal. What does that distinction mean?
3: So resident animals are, think of like a nuclear family. Um, They're gonna be paired, uh, male, female, and often their offspring kind of living together in in groups of maybe half a dozen or so. And those are the animals that are doing this deer predation. Transient animals are, um, well, lone wolves. (laughs) They're they're, they're Mm -hmm. animals that are out there on the landscape trying to find a place to call home all by themselves. And so if you are in the city and you see a coyote, like in Little Five Points, um, that is probably a transient animal trying to find a more wild place to be than, than the city. Um, yeah, so that's the big difference. But, the, but what this does, if you kill a resident animal somewhere out in the wild, there's this huge network of, of transient animals just moving across the landscape, waiting to hop back into that place that you've removed a coyote from, and, and start the process of, of making a family all over again.
1: Grant, do we know what the number of population is of those resident and transient coyotes, respectively?
3: Yeah, off the top of my head is something like 90,000 transient animals in Georgia, um, maybe a quarter of a million of the resident animals. Mm-hmm. And, and like something like 40,000 a year get killed in Georgia. Um, so, Long story short, there's no shortage of coyotes. This isn't an endangered animal by any stretch. Um, it's very adaptable and it's been very, very successful here in the South.
1: Yeah, that's the headline of your story As coyotes change the South. The South is changing them. So they are adapting to this different environment and shifting to deer hunting
3: yeah right and so the most exciting thing well the most new exciting thing i'm very excitable so all this is good to me (laughs) but they found that the bodies of southern coyotes are changing in distinct ways compared to coyotes in the west or the north their their ears and tails are getting shorter and michael chamberlain at uga tells me that they think this may be part of the adaptations to changing over to this deer predation these are things that make it easier for them to hunt adult deer
1: so their growing population feeding on deer and the fact that humans are now occupying more and more previously wild lands is one of the reasons that the DNR is incentivizing hunting coyotes. Does the research that you reported on and heard about make any assessment on efficacy of coyote hunting?
3: Right. So Charlie Kilmester um, heads up the deer program at Georgia DNR, and, and he said in the story that the indiscriminate killing a coyotes really doesn't do much for wildlife management you have to think across broad swaths of land like 70 miles across and take this comprehensive look at where coyotes are how you're going to control their populations if you want to do anything with uh, for deer populations and but there's also evidence that hunting pressure on coyotes ironically increases their numbers how, how? Well, that's, that's, that was not a part of this study, so I don't want to attribute, to the, attribute this, this idea to what the, the folks at Warnell were looking at. But there's this idea that they have some mechanism to say maybe double the size of their litters when there's hunting pressure. So uh, the jury's still out on exactly if you wanted to control coyote numbers in the South, how you would even begin to do it. Uh, Michael Chamberlain has told me from, from Warnell School of Forestry again at UGA, that one thing they're looking at is maybe how to manage forests in a way so that it's harder for deer to hunt, or or excuse me, coyotes to hunt deer. Again, think of these really dense woods. If, If there are less environments that are managed that way to be super, super dense and hard to move around in, Coyotes might have a tougher time hunting deer. All right, Grant, uh, That was a piece of the research they're looking into next.
1: Grant, stay with us. Uh, Grant contributed to our Wild Georgia series. Sophia Salaby is also here. She reported on the Monadnox. Hello, Sophia. Hi. Now, you hiked Metro Atlanta's most
4: famous mountain for this story. Here's just a little bit of sound from that experience. We're on Stone Mountain. 30 minutes east of the city, and on this spring Saturday, it's busy. But this isn't just a mountain. As Mira Cardenas explains, it's also called a Monadnock. Here on the east side of Atlanta, we have the most common Monadnock, the one that everyone knows, uh, Stone Mountain, world famous. As you hike up Stone Mountain, notice that the stone is really smooth and worn. You see bare rock. You don't see a lot of plants. But if you look in the crevices, you start to see a plant called diamorpha. So,
1: Sophia, Stone Mountain isn't just a mountain. It's a monadnock. What is that exactly?
4: So a monadnock is not your typical mountain. A typical mountain is formed through tectonic plates coming together, or there's also sometimes a volcano involved. Instead, a monadnock is formed when this hard rock forms underneath that first layer of earth. And over thousands and millions of years, that top layer of earth erodes, leaving something like Stone Mountain, a big granite outcrop that looks like a mountain and is kind of a mountain, but isn't quite. Um, So it's it's a difference in formation. And it's bare rock for the most part. For the most part, yes. But it's not the only
1: formation in, of that's kind of in the area, Mount Arabia, Panola Mountains, also Monadnock's. You learned they're
4: not quite the same. So physically, Arabia is a lot older. I think it's estimated it's about 400 to 500 million years old. Panola and Stone Mountains, they formed at about the same time, 300 million years ago, which kind of determined their fate and how we cre- think about them now. Stone Mountain cooled a lot more quickly. It left some great granite that people use. Panola cooled a lot more slowly, leaving the granite fragile. And because of that, when people tried to quarry Panola, like they tried to quar- like they quarried Stone Mountain, uh, it was too fragile and they had to give up. So that's why uh, you maybe don't think of Panola first because it's a lot more preserved. it's harder to get on to hike. Right. So your guide mentioned diamorph diamorpha mm-hmm.
1: plants that grow in solution pits. Uh, they called you. Met a little girl on your hike who told you more about them.
3: I try not to step in them. Sometimes I even have to leap over them because they're so big.
4: <laughs> and why shouldn't we step in them?
3: Because then then the plants um, then the plants that are growing there won't
1: won't live anymore, and they take a long time to grow. So, Sophia,
4: what's so special about the solution pits that even a well-informed child knows not to squash what's inside? Well, they're old, for one. I think this story is all about ancient things that have been happening for years. They take tens of thousands of years to grow. And basically, the way these start is little lichen that makes its way onto the mountain. And then they slowly eat away, creating these pits. And then plants like Diamorpha, which are these little succulents with red red and white flowers that only, like, bloom in March and April— and they come in. And then eventually, if you that process continues, the solution pits become forests, which is how it looks on top of Panola Mountain, which you would never see on the top of Stone Mountain at this point.
1: But what does bring to mind a reality that people hike these mountains a lot. Stone Mountain attracts thousands of people each year with its laser light shows. How does all this human traffic affect the ecosystem on top of these monadnocks?
4: So it like I said, it takes a long time for these solution pits to grow, and that human activity on top of Stone Mountain, the quarrying, carving into it, there's carved graffiti on it from workers over the years, that disrupts that growth pattern for the solution pits and the diamorpha and then what happens afterward. So that's kind of the big difference. When you go on somewhere like Panola, where you can only have guided hikes, they only tried to quarry it once and then gave up. There's a forest growing there, and you have to walk very carefully in the waterline so that your what your how you're stepping doesn't affect the lichen, which becomes a solution pit, which becomes much more. So it's kind of this fantastic little process that really only happens on these Manadnocks. And what I found in the story is that you're kind of able to have the best of both worlds have your cake and eat it, too, because Stone Mountain at this point has just become this recreational space. But there are places where you can still see what would have happened if we hadn't done the same things.
1: I'm going to go back to you, Grant, and this we've got a minute left. You've been editing features for GPB and reporting on your own. And this is the last day of our Wild Georgia series. So why do, what do you want to leave listeners with as we close out this series?
3: I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around in Georgia just how how multifaceted the the outdoors is here our environments um, we have some of the the densest species uh, diversity in the world in some of our forests particularly in the Piedmont um, Sophie's story about the solution pits and the thousands of years it takes to grow a forest on the side of one of these Monadnocks. All of these things are so fascinating. And what I want people to do is just go out into Georgia. Go out into the world and experience these things for yourselves. And be thankful, as I am, that uh, that we live in such a beautiful place. Well, Gra- it's, a, it's a great place to be. Grant Blankenship, thank you so much. Hey, yeah, no worries. Thanks for having us.
1: Sophia Salaby, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Both of them reported for our Wild Georgia series, and you can hear the whole thing if you go to gpbnews.org. There are several different, different features and stories in there. And also, you can join the conversation about how you enjoy the outdoors. Go to our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Global temperatures are on track to rise 2 to 5 degrees by the year 2100. That is according to the UN World Meteorological Organization. And that level of climate change will negatively impact every aspect of human life, from health to agriculture to the economy. An international team of geologists and anthropologists has been studying the last time humans had to adapt to the changing environment on a global scale. It was hundreds of thousands of years ago when Homo erectus roamed Africa. They hope we might learn about surviving climate change from our ancient ancestors. Georgia State University's Dan Diacampo has worked on the homonym sites and paleo lakes drilling project since 2013. The geologist and geochemist is also dean of Georgia, State, Georgia State's College of Arts and Sciences, and he's mm-hmm. joining me in the studio. Dan, I'm Dio Campo.
5: (laughs) Yes. That's right.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you for being with us.
5: Thanks. It's great to be here.
1: So help me with that project name, which I had such a hard time pronouncing, Hominin Sites and Paleo Lakes Drilling Project. What is a homonym?
5: Yeah. This is is a term that the evolutionary biologists have changed a, a few years ago. A hominin, well, let's back up a second, the hominids include all of the great apes. So that includes not only humans, but also chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas. Now, there's one group of the hominids that's really special. We call those the hominins, and those are the humans and all of our recently related ancestors. So those were the those were the primates that were standing up tall. They were building tools, creating technology, and eventually becoming what we call human.
1: All right, and the other part of that, paleo lakes, what is that?
5: That shows us the importance of geology in understanding human origins. A lot of the famous fossils that we have uh, showing human evolution come from Eastern Africa, where there is, of course, the giant East African rift, where the continent is ripping apart. And as it rifts, as it rifts apart, a lot of times the, those basins fill up with water, and we see lake basins like the great East African lakes of today and as those basins fill in with sediment that's how we how the earth collects the fossils and the sediments that tell us about the earth's past
1: okay so we'll talk about one of those sites in just a minute but i'm i'm curious about your hypothesis going into this, this is a large scale science experiment so the experiment began with a hypothesis was yours
5: yeah the incredible thing here is it's at the the and sites Paleo Lakes Drilling Project really is not just one project it's really six projects in six different rift valleys up and down the East African Rift and the the scientific community has been working on this project and related projects really for decades now and if you think back to the 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 early days of the hunt for human origins, like with Mary Leakey's groundbreaking work at Old Divai Gorge in Tanzania in the 50s, we've had these spectacular fossils and artifacts, the stone tools that were being made millions of years ago. But the burning question has been, what was the environment like mm-hmm. where our ancestors were developing? What, what, what kind of habitats existed? How did early hominins interact with the woodland species, the grassland savannas, the lake systems, and and therefore, how did technology emerge among our ancestors? So the hypothesis that's kind of overarching our work is that climate change, and a lot of this natural climate change is due to changes in the Earth's orbit, that climate change affected the habitats. It affected the distribution of resources and hazards across the landscape and that our ancestors had to adapt to that.
1: Okay, so you and your team are examining past climate change or how the environment looked at these various different times throughout history to help us understand it and its effect on human life today. So what period of time or periods of time are you investigating?
5: Well, each of the HSPDP sites is looking at a different lake and a different time slice in our history. Um, A couple of them that we've been focusing on recently are really zeroing in on the last one million years. Hmm. And this is a time when we see cycles in uh, in the Earth's climate. You know, here in North America, we have ice ages roughly every 100,000 years in recent geological time. In tropical Africa, we don't have ice ages and glaciers. We have fluctuations from wet climates to dry climates and back again. And so we've been seeing over the last million years, it's been getting increasingly arid in Eastern Africa with these cycles of wet and dry superimposed on top of that.
1: And you can tell that by drilling down to the core and seeing how the sediments line up from year to year or era to era.
5: Exactly. We drill down through the sediments and just like looking at the layers of sediment in the Grand Canyon, we look at the layers of sediment in these cores, and we work with specialists who use uh, radiometric isotopes to find out how old these layers are. Mm-hmm. They they examine the volcanic ash layers and they date them, and then we look at various indicators of what the environment was like back then uh, in the lab. And this is uh, I've been really fortunate because the the study of the mineral chemistry has been really important to many of these projects and that's what I specialize in in my lab at Georgia State.
1: Okay, so based on the findings, what do we know now about human evolution during that period?
5: Well, y- human evolution was it everything seems to be telling us very closely related to environmental change. Um the the hypothesis that we're we're really pushing on now is to to really see if the the um, high resolution changes in the Earth's climate, which we think we were were happening over twenty thousand year cycles back then, a little different than what we see today, that those were driving environmental changes that early humans had to adapt to, early hominins had to adapt to. So, for example, in southern Kenya, one of the HSPDP teams has shown that about four hundred thousand years, ago the environment was really starting to fluctuate very rapidly back and forth between these wet and dry climate periods that's around the same time that uh the the what we call what archaeologists call the middle stone age emerged these are much smaller tools than occurred before then they came the the raw material the stone raw material came from uh many kilometers away from where we find them in the archaeological sites now so the the early hominids were adapting and, um, and able to move among different resources over time.
1: Okay, so that's about migration, where, where these early humans were going for to find tools to find food, we're guessing.
5: Yeah, and, and, and water, too. And, water ah. resources, of course, is very important. And, you know, you, it's, it's hard to imagine how dramatic the environmental changes are, but if you imagine Lake Lanier turned into Death Valley, That's the kind of severe environmental changes we're talking about.
1: About over the course of 20,000 years? Is that the idea? Over
5: thousands of years, yeah. yeah. And so that full cycle from wet to dry and back again would take about 20,000 years.
1: So what kind of fossils are you finding? You mentioned tools. uh, But what other kind of evidence of other forms of life?
5: Well, that's really a really important line of evidence. We find, uh, of course, we start with the other vertebrates, like we find um, bovids, you know, the large-hoofed mammals that you see on grasslands today. And the, the um, biologists can tell us about whether these animals like to live in forests or whether they like to live in grassland. So that's an important part of how we reconstruct what the ancient landscape looked like. Now, you don't find those in the middle of a lake where we're drilling. So what we look for there are microfossils, um, organisms like diatoms, which uh, are which have tiny silica shells, microscopic shells. Or fossil pollen that tells us what kind of vegetation was growing around the lake basin.
1: What is what is the pollen? Re- it's especially timing now here in Georgia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what does the pollen reveal about what kind of life forms were existing then?
5: Well, this is one of the things we always look for when we bring back samples from Eastern Africa. We we make sure that we're not seeing Georgia pine pollen in our samples because that tells you there's some contamination. But if you imagine a, a lake basin with a with fresh water in it, it's it could be surrounded by uh, wet, humid forests, That po- the pollen from the, that vegetation gets into the lake sediment. And then if the climate dries and we no longer have a forest, but we have a grassland, now the sediment is collecting grass pollen. So we can see the fluctuations in the ecosystem.
1: Dan Diacampo is with us. He's from Georgia State University. He's a geologist and a geochemist, and he's working on the HS. P-D-P, the Hominem Sites and Paleo Lakes Drilling Project. This is going on in several sites around the world to try and determine what the climate was like in ancient history and how those changes and climate change that has been going on for millions of years might affect us. So you mentioned the lakes are an important place to go. Uh, Lake Magadi in Kenya is one of the places where you are drilling, close to fossil sites where things have been discovered. Mm How would you describe this
5: lake? It's kind of like Death Valley covered by baking soda. <laughs> Ooh, doesn't sound pleasant. Yeah, it's a it in that lake uh, the the waters get so saline that they they precipitate these crystals of, of a mineral we call trona, which is basically baking soda. And Uh, as those crystals grow, they form a a thick crust on the surface of the lake. And when you go out there onto the lake flats, it's, it's very dusty and this trona dust flies all around. If you get very close to the lake bed, you can see these big crystals growing like up to an inch or more taller. It kind of looks like a miniature version of Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Wow. And if you you listen closely, you can hear the the crinkle, crinkle of the crystals as they get toppled over and they blow around in the wind.
1: That must be a pretty interesting sensory experience to be there.
5: It's amazing, especially in the middle of the night when it's pitch dark. And, you know, drilling operations on a project like this are 24-7. Really? So we'll have a drilling team out there in the middle of the night, and it's like you're on another planet.
1: Well, so what does a 24-7 drilling activity mean? What does that do? Is that disruptive to the ecosystem?
5: Well, all of our operations, we work very hard to uh, to minimize the environmental impact, both in terms of the physical environment as well as the cultural environment. Because uh, remember, many of these places are in rural Eastern Africa.
1: Mm-hmm. People are living there, villages. It,
5: yeah, absolutely. And so... Um, involving the local community, and making sure everyone understands exactly what our scientific and educational goals are uh, is a very important part um, of the program.
1: So what kind of picture do you get of Lake Magadi hundreds of thousands of years ago from looking at what you're seeing now?
5: Well, it wasn't always the arid wasteland that we see today. There were times in the past when it was full of freshwater fish and the surrounding landscape had lush vegetation. And that's just a very different picture than, uh, than southern Kenya that, that we see today.
1: Mm. How far down is the team drilling?
5: Uh, most of the drilling, drill sites get down about 250 meters. We've actually collected, well, about 6,000 feet of core from all of these six sites. It's, it's been an incredible international collaboration with over 100 scientists.
1: What kind of technical challenges or even dangers are there with an undertaking like this?
5: Yeah, uh, drilling operations are are always dangerous and safety is very important. So, uh, you know, scientists often aren't used to being required to wear, sto- you know, steel-toed boots and hard hats, but we we follow all of the, the rules to keep everyone safe. Uh, there were some minor injuries over the past few years, but uh, all, all in all, it was a very successful operation.
1: So this project began in 2013, but you've been researching the Earth's evolution and human evolution in East Africa since the 90s. How do your findings complicate or maybe complement what we previously understood about the relationship between Earth's evolution and human evolution?
5: Yeah, the big thing that drilling uh, helps us to do is is move away from the outcrops. And the, the outcrops are those, if, you know, if you imagine the Grand Canyon, you, you see the layers of rocks there. Those are what... Mother Nature has revealed to us naturally. But what was happening, you know, 100 meters away or, or uh, 10 kilometers away? We don't know because there are no outcrops there. So when we go with a drill rig, we can poke down into those rocks and get evidence away from the outcrops. So we're starting to put together a three-dimensional image of what was happening in all these lake basins. Plus we can start to compare lake basins to one another. So for example, Southern Kenya, looks a little different than Southern Ethiopia. Mm. And we can start to really quantify environmental change and understand how it, it worked regionally.
1: Dan, earlier this month, you presented this research to your peers at a conference in Austria. How did that go over?
5: Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, the the It was a chance to get together not only with geologists, but with evolutionary anthropologists and biochemists who are studying uh, DNA of, of human populations. And really start to get to what I think the scientific community has tried to move towards for a long time, which is not the hyper-specialized disciplines that everyone studies. You know, I'm a mineralogist and geochemist. Mm -hmm. But actually, as we start to talk across the disciplines, we can really understand what the record of human evolution is.
1: We mentioned before that one goal of the project is to understand how climate change might affect human life in the future, given this view of the past any takeaways so far for this contemporary era?
5: Well the big the big takeaway for us as as for me as a geologist in this study is that the, the environmental changes we see over the past million years really take thousands of years to occur. And they're they're the type of changes we're seeing today, but the changes today are happening over a single human lifetime. Hmm. So it's really dramatically faster environmental change that we're seeing today. Um, Thankfully, I think the other message that we can take out of this project is that humans are highly adaptable. We have the ability to understand our environment and to change our behavior.
1: Yeah, well, that, I guess, is the silver lining of this. But if you think of the lush, beautiful, forested environment and then that arid, dry canyon with baking soda all (laughs) over it, I mean, do you— is it too much to project that that is a cycle that we can expect on Earth?
5: We absolutely can. Uh, we know some of these cycles are natural and they take thousands of years, and we can uh, we can predict that. But we can also start to understand in this world of of really high carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and there's no sign of it slowing down, what did the Earth look like in the distant past when we had CO2 levels that high? Now, we're talking... Tens of millions of years ago uh, when we had CO2 levels as high as we've pushed them today. But we can look back at the Earth's history and understand how did the, the atmosphere circulate, where was moisture going, and how did the environment change?
1: When the, you said you talked to, you, that you created these three dimensionals, or you can make these three dimensional models, is that something that's going to be available for all of us to see at some point?
5: Absolutely. Uh, we'll will be, of course, publishing our results in scientific journals. But we also have uh, groups of artists and filmmakers who are working on helping us to communicate the the meaning of this work uh, to a broader audience.
1: When do you expect to wrap?
5: Oh, there will never be a true rap. <laughs> There's uh, no finish. <laughs> <laughs> Uh But uh, o- over the next few years, we're, we're really just getting our first big papers out uh, this year. So um, th- there should be more communications in the years to come.
1: Well, fascinating work, Dan Diacampo. Thank you so much. Thank you. He's a geoscientist and associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. That's all we have time for for today on Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and The Raven Taylor. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kylie, senior producer. Sarah Shariari is the managing editor of GPB News. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OSD Talk. If you missed any of the show, want to listen on your own time, hit the Programs tab and download and subscribe to our podcast. Virginia Prescott, see you tomorrow.